Today is the last day in our series on Philippians. It's been an incredible ride through this book. We've called it Joy Ride because Paul's theme in the book of Philippians is joy. Thirteen times he mentions the word joy or rejoice in this book, and it just carries all the way through this book. And my concern for each one of us is that we find a joy that continues. It's just not something we leave behind us, maybe with the study that we've done, but it's something that can carry us every day through our lives. We want joy to be a a continual experience in our lives. In our Declaration of Independence, it promises um, the way of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And while we pursue happiness, sometimes we pursue it in the wrong places. And sometimes we pursue big things, like if I can get this new house, if I can get this job, if I can marry that guy or that gal, then I'll truly be happy. But a lot of the joys in life come through little blessings that God gives us. I mean, I was just thinking the other day of the things that make me um, smile, things that make me go, yeah, um, things that make me just, just uh, laugh out loud, that bring joy to my heart. There are those little things, and maybe you can identify with, with these but I want to share with you some of them. Um, children's laughter. When I hear little children, uh, my grandsons, for example, when I hear them giggle, man, it just lights my world. I loved having a hot cup of coffee to start the morning. I, I enjoy hot air balloons. There's something about the balloons when they're up there. This is my day's a good day already. Hot air balloons are floating. Um, being greeted by our dogs. When they get let out of their out of the laundry room in the morning or when I come in the door at night and these dogs come running up, I mean, they are so glad to see me and I'm glad to see them. Uh, getting a survey code for a free sandwich on my Chick-fil-A receipt. I love that. That's a good day. The smell and feel of freshly washed bed sheets. A gentle summer's rain. Not hailstorm. Gentle summer's rain. You know what really gets me excited? When I'm in a hurry to get somewhere and I hit green light after green light after green light. I go, yes, thank you, Lord. Um, when I open the mailbox and there's a personal card or letter in there. And I have to confess that I actually smile and say, thank you, Lord. When a car races by me going over the speed limit and then when I get up to the stoplight, he's right there next to me. <laughs> Maybe you've got your own little little shares of joy. We need joy in our lives. And there's a lot of things that steal joy from us. I call them joy thieves. And and they are things that creep in, things, people that that try to take joy from us. And if there ever was a person that had a a long list of them, that was the Apostle Paul. See, when he wrote this letter to the uh, believers in Philippi, he was in prison. It wasn't like modern-day prisons, so he's in a prison struggling. He's, he's confined there. He has very little resources. Sometimes he says, I'm in want. I'm hungry. Uh, we find out that his prospect is he might die. He might get executed. He, so he may not get released. He may be killed. That's, that's in front of him. He has people while he's in prison who are out there outside making trouble for him. He has people who are Jewish who will not uh, follow the way of Christ who are being very stubborn that, that bothers Paul. Then he's got people in the church that are having conflicts with each other. All around him, Paul has, has things happening and people that could steal his joy, but none of them do. I mean, he maintains this joy all the way through. And I want to find out what his secret was. And I, I want to take one more week to look back over this um, letter to Philippians and say, I wonder, Paul, if we could just take away some simple things from this book to maintain the joy, what would it be? Because, honestly, we need that. Uh, Americans are lacking joy. Since 1991... Um, our level of, of joy has decreased gradually. The this, this survey that's been done for several decades asks a simple question, are you, um, where are you on the happiness scale? And you have three answers. Number one would be 
not very happy, two would be pretty happy, and three would be very happy. And and the average across America right now is 2.18, which means we're just slightly above pretty happy. Not real happy, just a little above pretty happy. Maybe that describes you. But what was most shocking with the latest data is that since 1991, we have uh, increased 50% the number of people who feel they are not very happy. Unhappy people. And what's really sad is sometimes I run into people who go to church who look very unhappy. And I think we ought to be the happiest people on earth. I think we should be closer to the three level of of very happy because of what God is doing in our lives. I look at Paul and I think Paul's peeking out at three. High three all the time because he's found this joy in the Lord. How did he do it? Where did it come from? I think it came from three things he kept in priority in his life. And I think if we keep these priorities in order in our lives, we will experience kind of an ongoing flow of joy into our lives. And it's real simple. You've probably heard this before. The priorities are Jesus first, others second, yourself third. That spells joy, Jesus, others, and you. But I want to look at each one of those and what that priority entails. Jesus, well, for Paul, it was his passionate pursuit. If I want to be like Paul, I must passionately pursue Jesus. Paul was a very religious man, but he didn't know Jesus. He'd grown up in a, in a church. He grew up knowing the scriptures. He grew up doing the rituals. But he never had a relationship with Jesus until he had this uh, dramatic experience on the road to Damascus. And at that point, his life turned 180 degrees. See, the, the Paul who used to kill people who knew Jesus, used to drag them off to prison, now began to know Jesus in a very different way. And so his whole life now revolves around Jesus. In fact, if you, if you read through Philippians, you'll hear the phrases like this. He'll say things like, Everything I do, I do with Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. In fact, he says in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. My life is all about Christ. It's, it's all surrounded by Christ. He tells the Philippian believers that they are to rejoice in the Lord. They should, be, uh, they should stand firm in the Lord. They should agree in the Lord. This little phrase, in the Lord, shows up again and again. What is meant by that? How do you rejoice in the Lord? How do you stand firm? Well, I believe it's referring to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You rejoice in your relationship with Christ. You stand firm in the strength given to you in your relationship with Christ. You agree because of the harmony that flows through being in a relationship with Christ. All these resources become available to us because we're in the Lord. It's almost like we're plugged in to something from which we can draw power. Paul recognizes that. And so he makes this pursuit that he wants to know Jesus. In the third chapter, he says it this way, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ. And I want to be found in him. I I want when people look for me to say, there he is, right in the middle of doing stuff with Christ. That's where I want people to find me, to be found in him. So he makes it this his pursuit. He's going to pursue Christ. He's going to try to get to know him more and more and better and better. When I um, grew up in the church, I grew up in a little Methodist church, and I knew the facts about Christ. I knew he uh, was born of a virgin. I knew he died on a cross. I knew he rose from the dead. I knew he's coming again. I, I knew all those things. I believed all those things, but I wasn't a true Christian. Because it was all head knowledge. It was all facts, like a history book. 
And I, I suddenly came across this concept that I'd never heard in church before. I actually heard it outside church through a youth group I started attending, a personal relationship with Christ. And then I started finding that the Bible taught that. In fact, before Jesus went to the cross, he went into this Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. And in his prayer to the Lord, you can find it in John chapter 17, one of the first things he says is this, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Not just that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to go to heaven one day, but this is eternal life, that you have a relationship with Jesus and his Father. And this relationship is based on knowing, not not knowledge. This word know means to experience. That you have an ongoing experience with Jesus Christ and with the Father. That was all new to me. And I entered into this relationship with Jesus when I was 16. It was kind of like I invited Jesus now to be the driver of the car, to take me on this adventure. And so I invited Jesus in and... I always picture Jesus, you know, being in the driver's seat, and he's taken me places in this, this great Christian adventure. But honestly, in the recent years, I've, I've changed my view of that. I'm no longer, no longer like Carrie Underwood saying, Jesus, take the wheel. I'm behind the wheel, and Jesus is sitting right next to me. And he's, he's like my driving instructor. He's telling me when to speed up, when to slow down, when to be cautious, when to turn left, when to turn right. Because I'm behind the wheel, I can choose which direction to go. I choose to listen. I choose to obey. Every once in a while, I go off into the shoulder and sometimes into a ditch. Not because Jesus is behind the wheel, but because I am. I've refused to listen to him. I've chosen to do it my way instead of his way. I can't blame Jesus for that. It was my choice. See, God never takes away your freedom to choose. Even when you accept Jesus, it, it just means that you've invited into your life this Lord who knows everything, who's all wise, all good, and wants to direct you and be intimate with you in your life. When you think about it, it's mind-boggling that the God who made this universe, put all the stars in the space, all the galaxies, everything up there, that God who made all that, he's probably going bing, 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 says way down there in that little planet called Earth that's full of people, I want to know that one and 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 that one. He wants to know each one of us intimately, personally. I don't know how he does it, but he does. I think that's the message all through Scripture, that you can look at the gods of the other nations, and they're so much less than our God. I have to apologize to those of you who've been following with our Bible reading program through the summer. We're going through the book of Isaiah, and I've heard from a number of people, and honestly, I've experienced myself, Isaiah is a tough book. There's a lot of hard things to understand. I've actually got another book to read along beside it just to understand the background to Isaiah. So uh, if, if you're reading one of the Gospels instead, God bless you. Um, but I want to tell you this. The last, in this last week, there were some great chapters in Isaiah. In chapter 40, for example, God says, who is like me? Is there any God like me? I mean, the, 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 the nations will, will conspire and create these wood um, carvings or steel or, or metal structures of gods that they end up gathering around to worship. These are things that human hands have made, and they come before and they worship. But I made the elements they're using, God says. I made the people that made those gods. I don't need any representation on this earth. You see it all around everywhere you look. That should be enough to indicate to you who I am and what I can do. And he tells through Isaiah the people, 
I'm the God who fights for you. I'm the God who walks with you, who blesses you. And I want you to know me and I want us to walk together. Isn't that incredible that this God would do this for us? God wants us to know him. And the more I learn about God, in some ways it's like I know him less. It's like God has this infinite amount of of stuff to know about God and I know just a fraction of it. And yet that fraction I do know is beautiful and good and I love it. And I want to know more. Don't you? Don't you hunger to know more? See, sometimes we're intimidated by the Bible or intimidated by church, but don't. Just, you know, start in the shallow end, get a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper all the time, and you will find God as this infinite source of, of blessing in your life. You cannot fathom the reaches of God. He wants us to know him, so we make that our pursuit. In the early service, every Sunday, there's a gentleman that sits right over um, in the front row here. He puts his, telefo- or his uh, phone on a tripod, and he... He lets his wife watch the service off his phone as he um, live streams it. What I learned on Wednesday night is this man now comes to re-engage, which is our marriage ministry, comes to re-engage on Wednesday nights, and he brings his phone and his wife (laughs) because she lives in the Philippines. And so she's there with him. And uh, I asked him after class Wednesday night, I said, how is that working? Um, You've never, he's never actually met her. Face to face, never held her hand, never kissed her, but they got married a year ago, July. And I said, how do you do that? How does that work? He says, you know what? I was married once before. And this marriage um, forces us to focus on our communication. And we talk for hours with each other, and we have grown deeper and deeper in love, and we haven't, haven't even yet consummated the marriage. And I think, you know, in some ways that's so beautiful. Because it reminds me of our relationship with God that the Bible says right now we see as through a dim glass and one day we'll see face to face but not yet. I can't reach out and touch God. I can't hug God. I can't look him in the face. But the Bible says one day we will see him as he is. And I look forward to that. But it doesn't mean we can't have a relationship with him. We can have a beautiful relationship because we can communicate with him through reading the word and through prayer. So passionately pursue Jesus. The O is for others. And we prefer um, them. We, we consistently prefer them. You want to make your life miserable? Focus on your own happiness. But if you focus on the other happiness of others, you will find yourself truly becoming happy. That something happens when we give ourselves to others that we truly find joy in our lives. And so Paul summarizes this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I I love that verse, and I really wish we would all take this to heart because I think this is a key to making relationships good. And every time I hear about um, people not getting along, whether it be spouses, parents and kids, people within a church, I always find that there's an element of pride creeping in. You know, someone, someone got hurt. Someone's not willing to say, I'm sorry. Uh, someone's not willing to be humble. And yet, Paul says here, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing. Don't act out of pride. If there's pride in it, it's a killer. Uh, a gentleman came up to me for prayer this last service. He said that um, he and his wife are going through a divorce, and she and her new boyfriend are making public comments about him. On Facebook, he says, it's making me so mad, it's stirring up rage within me. 
He said, but I don't want to act on that. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be controlled by that. So we prayed about that. Because it's so easy to let other people then take us down a wrong path. But if we respond with humility and no pride and consider their interests above our own, we start to have breakthroughs. There's a, um, a book that our former pastor, Brian Myers, had our staff read. It's called Difficult Conversations. And I really like that book. I go back to it every now and then because there's some great principles in it. But there's also some great stories. And one of the stories is of a lady whose husband passed away. She's an older lady. Husband passed away. And she was complaining of having back pain. And so the kids um, surmised that the back pain was caused because it was so frequent by this old bed she was sleeping on. Her and her husband had slept on that bed for over like 30 years. She needed a new mattress, probably a whole new bed. They said, Mom, you need a new bed. But she wouldn't do it. And months would go by. uh, Over a year went by, and she was still complaining about a bad back. And so the kids were really getting upset. They said, Mom, we've told you again and again, get a new bed. Then your back pain would go away. And all of a sudden, she just started crying. They said, oh, we're sorry. We didn't mean to say it so harshly. She goes, no, it's not that. She said, I can't get rid of that bed because when I lay in that bed, I feel closest to your dad. And all of a sudden, they realized what she needed wasn't a new bed. She needed understanding. And many times in our life, we, are rush, we rush to judge people. We, we rush to tell, I, I think I know what you need, and I can fix that. And what we really need to do is just to pause and go and say, hey, tell me about what you're going through. Help me understand what you're dealing with. We'd go a long way with our kids because we, we tend to get real bossy with our kids as they get older, to sit down and say, oh, how, tell me how it's going. How are you feeling? How's this new school year going? Try to, try to understand what their needs are because their needs may be different than what you think they are. And you can't really love someone without meeting their needs, and you can't understand what their needs are unless you listen to them. Listening is a great skill. If we could just learn to listen to people better, we, it would go a long way toward understanding how to love them even above ourselves. I had always wanted to be a youth pastor because when I became a Christian when I was 16, and I loved going on youth, youth trips. I loved overnighters, you know, all-nighters. I loved just all the stuff youth get to do. And I said, man, you know what? If I become a youth pastor, I get to keep doing this stuff for the rest of my life. So I wanted to be a youth pastor. And then God opened this door and directed me to the, this path of becoming a children's pastor, something I never wanted to do. And all of a sudden, I'm dealing with these little, you know, snotty-nosed kids running around, babies burping up stuff. And I said, oh, man, I want to do real ministry. And now I'm working with these, these kids. Uh, but what God taught me there was a lesson I needed to learn. Because when you're around kids, you start to learn to serve them. You start to realize their needs are more important than yours in the moment. And all of you parents know that, right? You get a baby, and that baby's messing in their diaper that baby's puking up milk on your shoulder and you don't get mad at them for it you just love them through it and you know i can even say as a grandpa that that some of that stuff doesn't bother me as a single guy it did as a grandpa it doesn't because i've learned that i want i want to meet their needs and so moms moms do this a lot better than us dads but you grow up saying here you take the last piece of dessert here we'll watch your show We'll go to your restaurant. Um, we, have, we sacrifice it. I can't watch my shows now because nobody else in the family likes them or they're too mature for them or we won't listen to my music. We'll listen to the kids' music. And 
you find yourself sacrificing a lot for the kids, but I don't hear parents regretting that. Because you know what? It's exactly what Jesus did for us. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that um, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Now, I can't believe for a moment that Jesus says, man, I'm looking forward to getting nailed to that cross. That is fun. No, he, the joy was after that. The joy was beyond that. Jesus says, I'm willing to sacrifice my life for the joy of seeing people welcomed into my family. See, and Paul's just saying, follow the example of Christ who put the needs of others before his own. Does that mean Jesus is less? No, no, we worship Jesus. We actually bow before Jesus. doesn't make him any less. It's great. There is greatness in humble service. Sometimes some of the greatest things you can do for another person is say, you know what, I will be your servant. In, in Galatians, for example, Paul's writing to this other church and says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, you can imagine if, if there were slaves, there were a lot of slaves in that day, and they were told, hey, guys, I know you've been doing all the dirty work for other people. You're serving them, doing their dishes, cleaning up after them, but now you're free in Christ. So now go serve people. They go, what? We just got done serving under bondage. No, no, this is new now. You don't have to do it now. You get to. You get to. It's a choice. Nobody's making you serve. You get to serve. I would just encourage you, whether it be in your home, with your family, with the people you work with, the school you attend, adopt the mindset of a servant. And honestly, you will find joy flooding into your life. Pursuing Jesus passionately and then serving others is a, is a proven way to bring joy into your life. And then the third way is to look at yourself and to protect yourself through prayer. Prayerfully protect yourself. You do need to take care of yourself, but one of the best ways you can take care of yourself is to be a man or woman who prays. Prayer is very powerful. I have a library of books here, five um, different bookshelves in my office. I've got two bookshelves at home, a bunch of books on them. I love books. I'm, ki- I'm the kind of person that if I walk into a bookstore, it's like a kid going in the candy store. Like, oh my goodness, all these new books. And, oh, I love him. I love his writing or her writing. And I want to gather a bunch of books thinking I'll have time someday to read them. But I don't buy a lot of hardcover books anymore. I have a Kindle app. <laughs> and oh, is this cool? I can take... I could take a whole bookshelf full of books on an airplane with me on my, on my phone. And, you know, I used to think that, well, I don't, I don't like to do that because you can't underline passages. You can. You can actually underline passages on your digital book. Now, people do that all the time. They underline passages. Sometimes you'll actually see these dotted lines suggesting that maybe you want to underline it because someone else did. And I, I found that, do you know what the number one underlined passage is uh, in Kindle? Of all the books that they get, almost 18,000 people have highlighted this one statement. And it's kind of surprising because it's not a, not a book that probably hardly any of us in this room have read. It's from the book Catching Fire. It's from the Hunger Games series. And here's the, here's the line that's underlined almost 18,000 times. Because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. That's it. Because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. I wonder what else was highly underlined. You know what the most underlined book is in Kindle? It's the Bible. In fact, six different versions of the Bible make the top like 15 books on Kindle. 
Because people like to read their Bible and underline. There's a lot of stuff you can underline in a Bible, so people do that. Do you know what the number one underlined passage is, passage is in the Bible? It's not John 3.16. It's not Psalm 23. It's Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. I think what's so amazing is the most underlined statement in a secular book raises an issue that is resolved in the most underlying phrase in the Bible. Listen to Paul. I'm actually going to go back just a few words to the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What do you do with these things that happen that you don't know how to handle? Paul says, pray about them. Don't worry. Give them to God, and his peace will prevail in your heart. That's one of the greatest things we can do to, um, to, to the people around us is protect our own hearts and minds. We do that through prayer because anxiety is a real issue. I look back over my life, and it's not been a huge issue for me, but I'm recognizing it is a huge is- issue for our culture. 25% of people will experience a, an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. And there are five major, character, five major categories of anxiety disorders. First one is GAD, generalized anxiety, anxiety disorder. This is an exaggerated worry or stress when there is little or no cause for it. There is a obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD, recurring unwanted thoughts that lead to repetitive behaviors, like Howie Mandel wanting to wash his hands, or, or, or someone constantly counting things or constantly checking to make sure something's um, locked or off, that's OCD. And then you've got um, panic disorder, where unexpected and repeated episodes of intense fear create physical symptoms like shortness of breath, dizziness, um, disruption in digestive um, abilities, um, chest pain, racing heartbeat. Those all come because of it. Next one is very common, even in our region here near Fort Carson, is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which develops after experiencing a terrifying event that posed a physical threat. And then the last one is social phobias. Uh, These are overwhelming anxieties and excessive self-consciousness in everyday social situations. It might be like walking into a crowded, crowded room, a bunch of people around. It might be speaking in front of people. It might be eating in front of people. Those are all phobias. So there's all this anxiety. In fact, uh, the level of anxiety among teenagers today is comparable to the level of psychiatric, psychiatric patients in the 1950s. We are living in an age where anxiety is a huge issue. A lot of you probably have been seeing doctors over this. Some of you are on medication for it. I'm not minimizing some medical needs. Uh, they may be very real. But I do want to say we live in a culture. America is the most anxious place on the planet and why is that? Because we're the most comfortable people. We're the most we're highly educated. We've got a lot of uh, health um, uh, ac- uh, resources accessible to us. Why are we so anxious? And I believe it comes down to this word, information. There's too much of it. And much of it is negative. And so it's, it's not uncommon for us to open the newspaper, turn on the TV, and hear about the latest terrorist threat or shooting at a school or or. Um, public place of seeing, of hearing that some food carries some deadly bacteria, or some water has, is toxic, or that um, 
there's criminal activity or the economy is crashing or there's political unrest where the, where the culture is ready to split wide open with racial divide. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that hits us again and again and again. Throw in there natural disasters. Storm is coming. You know, the, the wind's blowing. All these things. Then we're concerned about our future. Will I have economic security? Will Social Security be there for me? Um, will I be healthy um, am, I, am I dealing with cancer? I mean, it's everywhere. All these things constantly. A lot of these things were always there before. We just didn't know about it. But now it's just like so much negative information. I mean, I open up a web page, and there's there at the bottom, the one food you should never eat. And there's a, like a picture of a banana on there. I went, what? <laughs> banana? When did the banana become a killer? So, you know, there's all this stuff. It's like we're, you know, and you're, there's stuff on the advertisements constantly making us afraid. Your identity might be stolen. Did you know that? <gasps> you know, constantly. What's it going to do? It creates anxiety. And what do we do with it? Well, Paul says, on the one hand, you've got anxiety. On the other end of the spectrum is peace. He says, this is where everyone wants to get, but this is where most of us live, anxiety. How do we get from anxiety to peace? He says, here's the path prayer. And he doesn't say this simple ditty, don't worry, be happy. It's not that easy. You've got to do something with the worry. And so Paul says, pray. Don't worry about anything, but take that thing in prayer to God. Uh, Peter says a similar thing in uh, 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because why? He cares for you. Cast means like throw, throw it on the Lord. Dump it. Get rid of it. It's not, it's not yours anymore. It's not yours to handle. It's not, you're not going to help it. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about anything because it's not going to make you stronger. It's not going to make you taller. It's not going to make you a better person. It's just going to bring a lot of bad into your life. So don't worry. Seek first the kingdom. God sees everything. He's going to take care of you. So, so we want to cast it in prayer. There was a lady who had this thing called a worry box. And every time she worried about something, she'd write on a little slip of paper, fold it up, put it in the worry box in her kitchen. And this act of actually putting this paper in the box made her feel good, like she was letting it go. I have a, a worry box, but it's called a journal. Yay. When I have things that are like bothering me, I open my journal, I express my heart to God. And when I close that book, it's like, God, it's yours now. I'm not going to carry it through the rest of my day. And here's what happens. When we take it to God in prayer, Prayer and supplication or prayer and petition with thanksgiving. How do you do that? It's something like this. God, I'm really worried about my, my kids going to school right now and the bullying that's going on there or the peer pressure. Am I still there? There I am. So I'm really concerned about all this happening in the school, but I want to give it to you. And I thank you, God, that you are always present, that we don't have to fear when you're near, that you are a faithful provider, that you are all wise and always good. And I thank you for that. See, see, when we, we pray, we are not just to dump our stuff on God, but acknowledge who he is and what he can do. Give him thanks. Maybe he's already done something in the past. You recall, God, you did it before. You'll do it again. And then he says this, and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Supernatural peace will guard you. And Paul picks a word that they were very familiar with because they had a lot of Roman soldiers in Philippi. It was a Roman colony. So they'd see soldiers around. And he says, when you pray like this, Peace becomes like a soldier to guard two things, your heart and your mind. Why do you need that? 
Well, it's very easy to let your mind go places it shouldn't go. You start getting worried there and you think the worst. You go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. My husband's late from work. What's going on here? My kids, they didn't make it home from school. Oh my goodness, what's happening? And you just go crazy with your thoughts. He says, peace will guard your heart, guard your, guard your mind and guard your heart. Those feelings that start to stir in there, anger and rage and bitterness, he'll guard it. It's like when, when worry's trying to creep in and you've stationed peace there outside your mind and your heart, Peace says, you're not coming in this man. You're not coming to this woman. They've already put a wall up and you don't belong here. You're unwelcome here. We need that guard. That's how you protect yourself. Also, not only does it, does it protect from what comes in, it protects what goes out. You know, you need a filter to protect yourself from what can come out of you. David said in Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I praise God that many times God has stopped me from saying things that didn't need to be said. He wants to set guard over you. See, I love that Paul actually lived this out in his life. You remember back when Paul um, first went to Philippi, he was put in prison because he cast a demon out of a girl. She used to make money for a, a couple gentlemen as she would fortune tell. And once the demon was cast out, she couldn't do that anymore. And so Paul and his friend Silas were locked into prison. Yet in prison, they did two things. The first, they prayed. He didn't worry about it. He didn't say, God, why am I here? Uh, this is a disruption to our ministry. He said, we're just going to pray. And they praised. They began to sing songs of worship. See, here's what I found in my life. If I'm busy worshiping, I have no time to worry. You cannot be a worrier and a worshiper at the same time. That when you start to praise God for who he is, what's he's, what he's accomplished, what he's capable of doing, worry starts to shrink and actually dissolve away to nothing. And that's why sometimes it's just good to put on some Christian music and worship with it, sing with it. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate who Jesus is, what he's done for us, because we don't have to worry. He's defeated death, our worst enemy. And so I'm going to invite you to stand now. And prayer partners, would you come up front here? Maybe you're struggling today with just some burden you've been carrying, some anxiety that's been eating away at you. You just need to give it to the Lord. It might be anger. It might be bitterness. It might be fear, whatever it is. Bring it to the Lord. Let's give it to him. Let's cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. And then let's lift up the name of Jesus for who he is. Exalt him for who he is because he is here today and he loves you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. Let's worship.